Good morning. Good to see all of you today. Man, we're here. September 23rd came and it went, didn't it? Uh, According to some, uh, end of the world was supposed to happen yesterday. And uh, it didn't. Um, You know, it's amazing to me that people will spend so much time and energy and effort and, and run their brain through the rigors of trying to figure this out and make this go here and what does this mean when it, it's simply right there. They're missing one simple thing. And when they're trying to say it's going to happen on this date, Mark thirteen thirty two, Jesus said, Of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father only knows. And so when anybody starts claiming that they know something that Jesus doesn't, it's pathetic. <laughs> and I'll tell you something too. A Christian numerologist is an oxymoron with an emphasis on the moron. <laughs> As Christians, we are called not to follow numbers, but to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so don't forget that. Uh, the message today is titled. Well, in your bulletin there, it says motivated by grace, but that's a mistake. I guess I speak on grace so much, it just became a habit, and I submitted that, but it's motivated by mercy. Uh, You're like, grace and mercy, what's the difference? Well, they're both good, yes, but there is a difference. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. So we're really going to be focused on mercy this morning. Uh, text we're going to be looking at here is Colossians 1. Starting in verse 15, so let's all stand together in honor of God's word. He's talking about Jesus here, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's pray. God, I'm so thankful for your word, just the truth that you have given us here, Lord. And I pray that, uh, God, through your word this morning, Lord, we would have a revelation of who you truly are like we never have before Lord, I pray that today would be a defining moment in someone's life, that they can look back on September 24, 2017 as a time where their life changed radically because of the encounter they had with you. Lord, I know you are here, and you are wanting to do something here in our hearts and in our minds. And so, Lord, we just submit ourselves to you and say, have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last week, we took a pretty hard look at who God is and what our response to him generally has been. And we read some verses that affirm God's absolute sovereignty, that those verses, looking at those things, made us have to look at our own hearts because of what verses like that tend to stir up within us. There are some things about God and the way that he rules that we really don't like to acknowledge very much and causes something in us to say, that's not right, that's not fair. 
And we learned that the two main reasons why we respond this way is, number one, because of the rebellious tendencies of the sin nature that we are all born with, and number two, because we are, like I talked about, the great-grandchildren of the Enlightenment, that great movement out of the 18th century that gave birth to this idea of human reason and individual rights being central. And because the Enlightenment movement is what eventually gave birth to the United States of America, this kind of Enlightenment thinking where it's all about us is ingrained in us as a people. It's all about my rights, my freedom, the pursuit of my happiness. And although some good things did come out of all that, it does cause some conflict within us when it comes to the sovereignty of God and how he chooses to govern. Before we get into the main point of this today, I want to spend just a little more time addressing this. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what we experienced in last week's message. And if you felt the sting of God's word piercing you last week, then for the first part of the message, you can take as me just kind of twisting the handle a little bit uh, before we move on. But unlike last week, I'm not going to leave you there. Uh, it's, we're going to get into some really, really good news in the second half of it. So uh, just hold on tight because God's going to take us for a ride this morning. Now, last week I said that the philosophy that came from the Enlightenment movement was like pouring gasoline on the fire of the rebellious nature that we already had. And that's what causes us when we read verses like that in the Bible that declare just how large and in charge God is causes us to kind of bristle up against that. Because like I said, deep down we don't want a God who controls all. We really want a God that we can control. And so when we read about how that's not the kind of God that he is, it makes us go, well, what about my rights? We hear about the doctrine of election and think, well, that's not fair. We read about the severity of hell and think, well, that's too harsh. We question the way that God governs, and it all comes from this idea that I have rights. And if you can relate to that, then my challenge to you this morning is to think of this. What about God's rights? Because if you're going to claim your rights, then here's what you're going to have to determine first. Where do your rights come from? What are they based on? And then where do God's rights come from? What are his based on? Because God's got, I created everything and I created it for a purpose. What do you have? That you were born? That you exist? How did that happen? God made it happen. The truth is, folks, when it comes to your rights and how they relate to God's, you have none. It's plain and simple. You and I have no rights from which we get to question God and how he governs. I heard it once said that if you don't like the way that God governs, get your own universe. Because this one's his. 
And he gets to rule it however he chooses. Now, because of the Constitution that this country was founded on, you do have a right to question the government. You have a right to question your boss when they uh, do something in their business that you have a problem with. You have a right to disagree with how the president runs the country, disagree with how law enforcement chooses to enforce the law, disagree with how a judge determines a ruling. But that's about as far as it goes. And some of you may be thinking, well, how do you know all this? I mean, where do you get that? Well, there's two main places in the Bible that speaks to this. One is in the book of Job. For most of you know the story where this upstanding, successful family man who fears the Lord has his entire world come crashing down. He loses his entire family, all his possessions, and his health all in one day and is left sitting in a pile of ashes covered in sores all over his body in absolute misery. And the whole book is essentially him and his wife and his three friends trying to figure out why this happened. Why would God do this to him? Why would he allow such a horrific thing to happen to someone who is so good to God? And the general consensus among them was that Job must have done something to deserve this, which is the same thing that you and I tend to think when we encounter difficult things in life. Because if we didn't deserve that, then what? It's not fair. It's not fair and it's not right unless we have a reasonable explanation for it. And after 37 chapters, God finally speaks to all this speculation as to why he would do something like this and answers Job's pleading of his case before God. And he does not give Job the kind of explanation that he is looking for. Why not? Doesn't Job have a right to know why all this is going on in his life? Well, apparently not. Because God answers Job by asking him a bunch of questions. And the first thing he says to him is, gird up your loins like a man and I'll ask you something. And then he starts in, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Where were you when I told the oceans they could only go this far and no further? Where were you when I? Where were you when I, over and over again, he keeps going, asking Job where he was when he created everything and set the universe into motion. And after two chapters of this, Job finally responds, and his response is, behold, I am insignificant. What can I ask of you? I put my hand to my mouth. And then he worships God. God answered Job's demands by just simply declaring who he was. And seeing God for who he is put everything in the correct perspective for Job. The other place in the Bible that we see this is Romans chapter 9 where Paul is talking about how God chooses whom he will have mercy on. And Paul knows the question that everyone who reads this is going to have about this doctrine. And in verse 19, he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? It's essentially the same question I get whenever I talk about election. 
And that is, how can the blame be laid on unbelievers if God's the one that has to give them that belief? If he chooses who's going to believe in him and who's not? I mean, where is individual responsibility in all of that? These are the same questions that Paul knew that we would have about it. And how does he answer that question? Well, he doesn't try to water it down. He doesn't explain it in a way that doesn't make God seem as harsh or anything like that. In fact, he really doesn't explain anything. He gives a declaration rather than an explanation, a declaration of who God is and who we are in relation to him. And in verse 20, he says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Paul basically gave the same answer that God gave Job. And that is, you are the created and you have no rights from which you get to question the creator. But we don't like that because we've all grown up being told that we have a right to this and a right to that. Our country was founded on the idea of protecting our inalienable rights, and many people have died giving themselves for the protection of those rights. And so this is ingrained in our DNA as Americans. And so anything that we read that says otherwise, we bristle up against. We, we, we don't like it because there is something in our dark hearts that despises this doctrine that makes more of God and less of us. Bible says that all the staggering things that we keep discovering about our universe is just a small fraction of God's power. Compared to him, we are nothing. And the Bible reminds us of this over and over again and refers to us as things like dew on the grass. Here today, gone the next. Our lives as but a breath. And Paul refers to us as clay in the hands of the potter. But we don't like hearing that either because our culture is obsessed with building up self-esteem. Everyone is so special, they all deserve a trophy. And if you are a millennial, more than likely you've grown up with your parents, your teachers, and your coaches telling you just how awesome you are. And if that's what you grew up hearing, then it's going to be hard to swallow these verses in the word that say otherwise. But even if you're not a millennial, we don't have to be told we're awesome in order to have a problem with this because every one of us come into this world absolutely full of ourselves. They say that the first words that the majority of babies say is mama and dada. You know what the next word is? Anybody want to guess? Exactly. Mine. Every parent knows this. And they don't say it in this sweet, cute way. I mean, even a toddler is able to come across with righteous indignation. This is mine, and you can't have it. Sin nature that we're all born with naturally wants to rebel against God and tries to exalt ourselves over Him and claim our rights over His. God has two responses to that rebellion, and they are both very severe. I know we don't like to talk about God being severe. We just want to focus on how loving he is all the time. Romans eleven twenty two 22 says, Behold, which means 
look at, gaze upon, and know the kindness and severity of God. We've got to know both. And the reason is, if we don't understand how severe he is, we'll never be able to fully appreciate his kindness. Last week, we looked at examples in the Bible of God's attitude towards disobedience and rebellion and how he takes it very seriously. So seriously, in fact, that those who continue to live rebellious lifestyles, making life all about them, completely disregarding God, there is eternal torment and punishment for them in the next life. Hell is yet another example of one of those things that some want to declare is not right. It's not fair. It's too harsh of a punishment. It doesn't fit the crime. That is a belief that is becoming more and more popular in our world today. And if that's what you believe, then let me just let you know what you are saying in that. If the punishment doesn't fit the crime, then what you are saying is that the crime isn't that big of a deal. If eternal punishment and suffering doesn't fit the crime of rebellion against God and the belittlement of his great name, then those things aren't that big of a deal. Let me tell you something. They are a huge, huge deal. And just think how big and glorious and mighty and holy must God be if hell is the just response to the rebellion against it and the belittlement of it. He must be pretty spectacular. Here's another way that people like to try to avoid the severe aspect of God. They'll say something like, well, that's how God used to be, but he's not like that anymore now since Jesus has come. Or God the Father is the severe part of God and Jesus is the kind part. The Old Testament was his severity. The New Testament is his kindness. But that's not the case at all. There are no aspects of the Father that aren't in Jesus. And there aren't any aspects of Jesus that aren't in the Father. And that brings us to the text that we just read in Colossians 1. Look at it again. Talking about Jesus, he says in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. He's not an image. He's not the kind image. He is the spitting image of God. Everything we know about God is found in Jesus, and everything we know about Jesus is found in God. And then it says, for by him all things were created through him and for him. That's everything that we talked about last week. Everything that God created, he did it for his glory. And it was done through Jesus and for Jesus, which means he is at the center of the story. He is what matters. He is most important. Not us, but yet time after time, we try to make it about us and put us at the center of the story over him. Okay, so after everything we talked about last week and through the first part of the message today, here's where we are. What we know is that God created all, he knows all, controls all, and owns all. 
We know that he does all this in order to display the perfections of his glory. And we know that we, those who he created to enjoy and worship him forever, are small and insignificant. We have no rights from which we can question God, make demands of him, or hold him in our debt, and yet we are the only ones that of all that he created that have elevated ourselves above him, have belittled his name, walked in active rebellion, and tried to steal his glory for our own. Do you not see how utterly foolish and arrogant we are? That is suicide to be that way. We who claim the moral high ground by calling out injustice whenever we see it in the world, constantly declaring things that aren't right and aren't fair, this is what we should be declaring that about. The way that we treat God. We are the ones that we should raise that indictment against. And do you not also see just how easy it is, easy it would be for the one who created everything simply by speaking words and it all came into existence? How easy it would be for him to just completely destroy us. Put us to an immediate end just like that and has every right to do so. If there is any ounce of sensitivity in you towards what is right and wrong in the world, you should be feeling the weight of your own injustice right about now. We don't even deserve to be breathing God's air. And the fact that he even allows people to do that, while at the same time those people use those lungs that breathe his air to utter blasphemous slander against him is just mind-boggling to me. The Bible talks about that and refers to it as God enduring with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It is mind-boggling to me that he hasn't done it already but is patiently waiting to unleash his wrath at a designated time. It's a good thing I'm not God because I'm telling you right now, if I was, there wouldn't be a one of us here anymore. I would not allow for one second anyone who did that to me to enjoy the warmth of my son on their skin. I would not allow them to laugh, to love, to enjoy my good food, to be refreshed by a good night's sleep, much less leave their footprints on my planet. But he does tolerate that for now. But there will be a day when his patience comes to an end. And the severity of God will be known by many. But what's even more mind-boggling to me than that is the fact that he has provided a way for some to avoid that wrath altogether. He sent his own son, eternal deity, Jesus the Christ, who takes off his glory, puts on human weakness, and walks in that with no sin, and then gets on the cross and absorbs God's wrath towards our slander and rebellion. 
We don't have to wait for that great and terrible day of judgment to see God's wrath for sin displayed. He already displayed it at the cross. For those whom he has chosen to be the recipients of his mercy, he took your rebellion, your glory-thieving arrogance, your sin, he placed it on his innocent son and displayed the full array of his wrath. R.J., that is God's wrath poured out for your blasphemy and rebellion. He put it on his son. It was horrific and terribly severe. The cross is God's other response to the rebellion and the belittlement of his name by something he created. The good news of the gospel is that because it was absorbed by Jesus, for those who put your faith in him, there is none left for you. None of God's wrath left for you if you put your trust in his son. The good news that we've come to celebrate as believers in Christ is that we have right standing with God, not because of us, but because of him. Are we still rebellious? Yes, Do we continue to be rebellious? Absolutely. I gave examples of how we still do that last week. Does God pour out his wrath on his children? No. His children are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus took our punishment. And so the way that God deals with his children is through discipline and mercy, not punishment. Like I said, many Christians still tend to think that when difficult things happen in their life, that they must have done something in order for God to to allow this, that, that he is punishing them for something that they have done. But if you are his child through faith in Jesus, that doesn't happen. What you are going through is either his loving discipline or his mercy. It's not punitive because Jesus already took that for you. I've shared with you several times about the difficulty that Carol and I went through for a good part of our marriage. And to say it was difficult would be a huge understatement. And there were times where I just knew that God had to be punishing me for something. And I promise you, there was a list in my mind of things I did that it could be the reason for. And I kept doing all that I knew to do to make up for those things and tell how God how sorry was how sorry I was for those things and making promises and sacrifices to him all so that he would be appeased and pull me out of this misery. But I came to realize later that the difficulty that we were facing and the misery that he allowed us to go through was both his discipline and his mercy. It was his discipline in that he used that to mold each of us more into the image of Christ. That struggle brought things in our heart to the surface that he wanted to deal with and heal and remove. 
It was his mercy in that had we not gone through that, our marriage wouldn't have made it at all. That difficulty brought us to a place where we knew things had to change. It brought us to a place where we had to call on and rely on the Lord. We were at the complete end of our rope. The only thing left for us to do was to let go. And that was the best thing that ever happened because we let go of the rope and trying to do it our way. And we just relied on him. So God led us through all that difficulty and misery to bring us to the end of our rope so that he would be the only thing there left for us. We didn't deserve a better marriage. But he has allowed us to experience one because of his mercy. It was his mercy because had we not gone through that, our marriage would not be where it is right now. We didn't deserve what we have right now, especially for the way that we treated each other during a lot of that time. But because he's a good father who deals with his children in mercy, he's now allowed us to experience that, to have that better marriage When I came into the office this morning, I go in there and I notice that there's something in my mailbox there. And so I get it out and it's this big promotional thing to church leaders to come to this seminar that they're having for something. And uh, I didn't even read the details of it because there was one big thing in bold lettering just right there at the top of it that caught my eye that said, God cannot bless a mess. I've heard that before. You ever heard that? God can't bless a mess. And I thought, well, that is really bad news. And if that's true, then none of us have any hope. Because that is the story of the gospel. He saw the mess that we had created of our own sin and rebellion And he blessed us by sending his own son and paying the penalty of that for us. He saw the mess of my marriage. And because he's a good father who deals with his children in discipline and mercy rather than punishment, he blessed it. Not because of us, but because of him. To say that God doesn't bless a mess, the the underlying message in that is get your mess together so that God will bless you. Clean up your mess, and that's the only way that God will bless you. Well, that's the complete opposite message of the gospel. The gospel says come in your brokenness and your mess and your dirt and your sin, and he will clean the mess for you. But the good news gets even better. Wait before you start clapping because there's more coming. (laughs) What's even more mind-boggling than the fact that God has provided a way for us to escape his wrath is that he went even further than that. Not only has he poured out his mercy, but he has given us the privilege of sonship. 
He has given us who had no rights at all the rights of sons and daughters. He has taken we who were nothing and made us something glorious. Not only did Jesus take our sin, but he has given us his righteousness. Now I want to read one more scripture before I end this. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. This is another text that was included in the scripture reading that we did on Easter that we've been going through. And so you get two of those truths in one message today. Romans 8, starting in verse 32, says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No one can condemn you because all of your sin and your guilt was condemned on the cross of Christ. We are justified in Christ, made right with God. And every time we do sin, Jesus is right there at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, still acting as that buffer between God's wrath and us. James 2.1 says that when we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The Greek word there for advocate is the same word used for an attorney who goes before a judge on behalf of a defendant and, and presents innocence or presents evidence of their innocence. And so that's what saying Jesus is. Every time we sin, every time we mess up, every time we create a mess of our lives, we have Jesus who goes before the judge on our behalf presenting evidence of why we are innocent. And he doesn't present any evidence of all these great and wonderful things we did and what a good person we are. The only evidence he presents before the judge are the holes in his hand and in his feet. And he says, this one is clean because of me. Because of me. Here's the evidence I present. My blood. And God deems us innocent. Justified. So the next time you endure a struggle. For those of you who are going through one. Right now. Don't start wondering what all you must have done to deserve it. Or getting all defiant and bitter because you know you didn't do anything to, to deserve it. You start either down either one of those two roads and I promise you, your world will begin to unravel. You'll find yourself making promises and sacrifices to God in order to somehow appease Him to get you out of that difficulty. That's not how our God works. God says, you are mine and I'll strengthen you. I'll sustain you. I'll walk with you because you are my son, you are my daughter, and I'm pleased with you. As much as I preach it, I have to admit that I still have a hard time wrapping my head around this pleasure that God takes in me. I mean, it's too good to be true, yet the Bible says that it is. God blew up the universe with the words of his mouth, yet he knows me and loves me and rescued me with his mercy 
and his grace. So the doctrine of election and the sovereignty of God and all that stuff that makes people so uncomfortable, it's a beautiful thing. Let it settle. He loves you. He pursues you. And he has extended his grace and his mercy to you. Last thing. For far too long, many of us in the church have bought into the religious error that tries to use fear, guilt, and greed in order to motivate people to start living right. Fear, believing that God is going to punish you if you don't. Guilt, believing that you are such a horrible person if you don't. And greed, believing that God's going to give you all this good stuff if you do. None of those are found in Scripture to be the motivation that God uses for us to live the life that he has called us to. What he uses is mercy. It says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Like I've said many times before, our default tendency into how we relate to God is usually to think that if I do this, God will do this, which is that message and that thing in my book. What that's saying is that if you clean up your mess, God will bless it. But that's not how God operates. When we see how incredible God's mercy to us is through Christ, that allows us to then say, because God has, I now can. Because God has extended his mercy to me, I now can live for him. His mercy means he's already given me all that I could want or imagine. He doesn't have to dangle something in front of me like a a carrot in front of a horse to get me to do something. What he has already done is all the motivation we need. Because he has, we now can. And so let his mercy be your motivation for living according to the person that he made you through Jesus. Let's pray. God, your grace and your mercy is, like we've seen this morning, just so undeserving. There are not enough words in our vocabulary to accurately just describe our gratitude. Or we can't sing songs loud enough to fully express our appreciation for providing a way of escape from your wrath. And for not just saving us from punishment, but giving us good things, giving us the rights of sons and daughters, and giving us the righteousness of Jesus, and giving us innocent, and all the good things that we've been spending the last six months looking at that we have in you. Lord, I pray that this morning that would hit home for somebody for the first time. Lord, if there is anybody in here this morning who has has constantly lived their lives up to this point, making it all about them. And today they are seeing how, how sinful they are for doing that, how guilty they are before a holy God. And Lord, that they know that their only hope is through the blood of Jesus. God, I pray that you bring them to that place of repentance. 
because of your kindness that you're extending to them right now. Lord, those that are going through a struggle, I pray that you would encourage them right now. Just letting them know that you are aware of every detail. You hold everyone in your hand. And what you are working is your loving discipline or your undeserved mercy. And just remove that weight of guilt and shame off of them. Lord, I know that you are here right now through your Holy Spirit and that you intend to do a mighty thing in us this morning. And so, God, we just ask you again to have your way. Thank you for who you are, for showing us who you are, and even more for showing us what you have done through Jesus. Lord, we love you. Let our lives just reflect the gratitude that we have for that. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.